The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. My name is Mary Greer, and today's scripture reading is from Mark 5, 21-42. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered around Him, and He was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus, by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd gathered, followed him, and thronged around him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for twelve years and who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus, and came up behind him in the crowd, and touched his garment. For she said, If I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned around in the crowd, and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any farther? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Tabitha Kuma, which means, Little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was twelve years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Amen, beloved, it is the word of God. It is more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey, and the drippings of the honeycomb. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you uh, for this amazing story and how we find ourselves there, uh, desperate and needy. And Lord Jesus, you more than capable of power going out of you for our sake, you becoming weak so that we could be made strong. Give us eyes to see that when we fail, Lord Jesus, you on our behalf mightily prevail, for we ask it in your name, the seed who crushed the serpent's head in the Alpha and Omega. Amen. Well, some of the seniors from uh, CPA this past week went down to Orlando to Universal Studios, and I don't know how many of you have been to Universal Studios, but it... It has maybe my favorite roller coaster in the whole world, the Incredible Hulk. How many of you have ever ridden the Incredible Hulk? 
How many of you wish you had never read The Incredible Hulk? Uh, it's called The Incredible Hulk because when you write it, you get off of it and you likely are green yourself. It's an incredible, it's an incredible roller coaster. You start off on this incredibly steep hill, 110 feet tall, and in two seconds, zero to 40, right out of the gate. It's not one of those old chain-based roller coasters. You guys who are Nashville natives, you remember the Wabash Cannonball when you'd go up the hill, you know, that kind of thing, gravity takes over. Now, this is what is called a drive tire system that has 230 electrical motors that pinch the bottom of the train cars and with that pressure forces it up the hill like a lightning bolt, takes your breath away. It's exhilarating. And by the time you catch your breath, you can't stop laughing. Each launch, every time a a train of cars launches, each launch requires eight megawatts of power. Eight megawatts of power. Now, I'm I'm no uh, electrical engineer, but I... I am told by some that I'm an Enneagram 5, and some debate am I a 4 or 5, and they kind of get contentious. I don't know what it says about what Enneagram they are. But some say I'm an Enneagram 5. That may account for why I rooted around on the interwebs and found a kilowatt hour to kilowatt conversion calculator. And I discovered that the average household in America uses 28.9 kilowatt hours in a 24-hour period, which equals just over 1,204 watts of power every day that your house uses. The Incredible Hulk, each time it launches a train of cars, uses eight megawatts, eight million watts of power. And so in order to keep the local power grid in Orlando from from experiencing the occasional brownout, they built several generators with flywheels to account for the power that just goes out. Every time uh, you take flight, reaching speeds up to 70 miles an hour. It's kind of like the Gospel of Mark, 70 miles an hour. The Gospel of Mark is such a a fast-paced gospel. It's a high-speed gospel. Mark uses this special Greek word, euthios, 42 times. It's only used 12 times in the rest of the New Testament, four, maybe six times in the Greek Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, but 42 times in the Gospel of Mark. Euthios. He loves this word. It, it means suddenly, immediately, straight away. Jesus went here. Jesus went there immediately, straight away. Mark does not allow grass to grow under Jesus' feet. He is on mission, on the move. Mark rushes us to the cross and leaves us breathless by the time we get there. And our text this morning is going to leave us breathless. But in the end, we're going to laugh tells us about two things, really, the nature of our suffering and the nature of our Savior. The nature of our suffering and the nature of our Savior. And in our suffering, you know what it's like. Uh, As C.S. Lewis says, the opening words of a grief observed, no one ever told me that grief felt so much like fear. In the midst of our suffering, we we know what it is to be afraid. And in some ways, this this story could be told, uh, told as a tale of two daughters, right? A tale of two daughters, one daughter, 12 years old, we read in Luke's account in chapter 8, verse 42, a 12-year-old little girl who had a father who loved her, his only daughter, Luke tells us, a father who came before Jesus in stark, soul-searing fear, fell prostrate on his face and interceded on behalf of his daughter. My little daughter is at the point of death. Eschatos eche in the Greek. She is at her eschaton. She is in her last days. There's no father here this morning. 
upon whom this is lost if we let ourselves slow down and enter into this synagogue ruler's pain and his fear. Can you imagine anything that strikes fear into our hearts as parents more than thought of losing a child? And some of us in our community know that fear and walk that weary road. Well, Mark is a roller coaster ride through the five things you and I fear the most. He, he takes us in the first five chapters through the five things that scare us the most. And Jesus shows himself strong over things like sin and the demonic realm and natural calamity and sickness. And, and here he's about to put death on notice that it will never have the last word. A little girl, 12 years of life, a father calling her daughter, my little girl. And a woman who had been called everything imaginable for the last 12 years. Unclean, a pariah, despicable, filthy, outcast. Don't get near me, don't touch me, stay away. No one advocating for her. 12 years of belonging for the little girl, 12 years of longing for this woman with the issue of blood. You see in Leviticus chapter 15, verses 25, to 33, the law of God as it relates to the discharge of bodily fluids as a reminder of the need for sexual purity within the community of God and how these normal biological processes, the loss of life fluid, blood or semen from the organs of procreation were a picture of death. Life is being lost, death which has no place in the presence of the God of life. And to be sure, some of the specifics of the law of God in the Old Testament sound strange to us, but God did not establish these things as an end in and of themselves, but he established these laws to bring us to the end of ourselves. Galatians 3.24, the law of God was put in charge as a pedagogue, a teacher, a nanny, that it might lead us to Christ, that we would be justified by faith. We see in the law of God our lack, our despair, our bankruptcy, and it rushes us to Jesus Christ, who alone fully embodies and fulfills the purity required in the law of God. Well, in Leviticus 15, women were to wait seven days after uh, their monthly cycle and then offer a sacrifice of a turtle dove so that they would be clean and could come again into the temple. This woman could not afford a turtle dove. Seven days, try 12 years. 12 years she's been waiting, cut off from the very life of Israel. She can't worship. She is not worthy. She is unclean. If she touches one of us or if we accidentally brush up against her, the sleeve of her garment comes into contact with us, we, we're unclean. No one invites her to lunch after church. She can't go to church. She might as well have been a leper, cut off spiritually and socially. No man would marry her. She's unclean, and, and, and if he had, when her uncleanness would not go away, he would simply divorce her. Oh, dear woman, you're about to meet the husband to whom none can compare. You're about to meet your heavenly husband, and you just don't know it. How could she even work to provide for herself? Who's going to have anything to do with it? This affected every aspect of her weary life, and the list of cures in those days were really bizarre and kind of superstitious applying crushed up leaves or carrying around a dried partridge egg in a special, in a special cloth. She had spent her last dime seeking medical help and she just got worse and worse. How long you think it been since she had laughed 
How long do you think it had been since she had danced, had the chance to catch her breath without feeling so lost and alone? And so a father, afraid now for the life of his little girl, and a woman used up, unclean, ostracized, unwanted, untouchable, who can't remember life without fear. What do you fear the most? Like right now, what, is there something gripping you like a boa constrictor that just squeezes every once in a while to remind you it's there, you wake up with it. Sometimes you're scared to even get out of bed in the morning, afraid of being shot like a cannon and, and taken along the, the rails of the twists and turns of your life. And, and you're, you're looking for the panic button, but you can't, can't quite reach it. Or, or maybe there's just sort of a low-grade anxiety that, that runs like the operating system under every app of your life. What do you fear? And is Jesus big enough? So our suffering uh, tells us something about our fear, but, but in this text we learn something about faith, true saving faith. Jairus was a very, very important man a ruler of the synagogue. He was not a rabbi, but he was a steward of the building and and ordered the worship liturgy. He guarded the Old Testament scrolls that were housed there at the synagogue and chose the scrolls for the reading each each Sabbath. Uh, His importance in the esteem of the people could not be overstated. He was absolutely central in the community, and he came with desperate faith. That's the kind of faith Jesus likes. Are any of us desperate enough this morning for Jesus? How long has it been since you have listened to the reality of your own soul and your desperate need of Jesus? He knew Jesus could prevent death. (laughs) Jesus, you must come now. Time is of the essence. My little girl, my little girl, come now. It was a youthful situation immediately. So off they went. He was an important man. This woman was not important, not really. Women really weren't in those days. They were kind of a notch above property, I I guess you could say. Um, In her case, she had been unseen for the last 12 years. And when she was spotted, she knew to stay away from any human touch. She was not important, but she was about to become an irrepressible interruption. She's one of the bravest people in the whole Bible. And here's a couple of ways that she helps us understand saving faith. When you think about evangelism, right? When you think about going out and doing apologetics, doing relational evangelism, or when you think about missions and and, and spreading the gospel, right? And so Debbie, when you're about to go over to Japan to help spread the gospel as an MTW missionary, think about this. When it comes to evangelism, it always involves, saving faith always involves apprehension of some truth about the person and work of Jesus. She had heard about this man who did wonders. She knew, she knew enough about Jesus that she knew her desperate situation needed his touch. Number two, her faith wasn't perfect. It was tinctured by superstition. There was this belief at the time that if you could just touch the clothes of some great man, that 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 would work magic for you. The point is this, she didn't have a PhD in theology. Her faith was not fully informed, it had gaps, it had weaknesses. Her faith was anemic, just like her poor body with its constant loss of blood. But Jesus did not reject her because 
she didn't have all the details about him correct. She was missing some details, but she was full of desperation. So if you're here this morning and you don't have all your questions about Jesus answered, um, he's not put off by that. She is you. She is, she is me. You ever think to yourself, I don't know all that much about the Bible. I don't, I don't know all that much about Jesus. Besides, if people knew all the crap I'd done, they'd run. They'd be, in so, they'd be so embarrassed for me, they'd be embarrassed for themselves that they knew me. Yet Jesus says in Matthew 11, 28 to 30, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Anybody here this morning like to get in on that? Come to me this morning, all you who labor and are heavy laden. You think this woman had labored and was heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. My yoke is easy, my burden is light, and you will find rest for your souls. The nature of our suffering. If you look at this text, we discover something about the nature of our Savior. There's an undeniable miracle that has occurred here. She pressed through, reached out, grabbed the hem of his robe, and immediately she knew she was healed. Immediately, Jesus stopped the frantic rush to Jairus' house. Who touched me? The disciples were not amused. Jesus, the crowd is thronging around you. Everybody's touching you. What do you mean? Who, who touched me? And their frustration had to increase when a trembling, fearful woman, they just weren't thought much of in that society, in that culture. Why would a great teacher on mission like Jesus slow things down for a woman, and especially a woman like this that we all know is unclean? Who knows? right? Who knows what, what is the cause of that? Probably brought it on herself. Loose women get what they deserve. You can imagine the rumors. You can imagine the gossip. You can imagine their frustration when this trembling, fearful woman fell before Jesus and began to tell him the whole truth. I am unclean. And Jesus, I know that I've touched you and, and I've made you unclean, but if you only knew what the last 12 years have been like, Jesus could have said, oh, trust me, I know every detail of the last 12 years of your life. Who knows how long it took her to tell the whole truth. <laughs> you think Jesus is interested in your story this morning? You think he doesn't already know your story? You think Jesus is not concerned about the tiniest details of your life? Jesus is deeply, intimately concerned about the tiniest details of your life because your life is not tiny to him. The disciples had to be trying to figure out why Jesus was putting the brakes on the Euthus Express at this point to listen to this woman. When an important man, a ruler of the synagogue, needed his attention, a man who certainly could be beneficial to this movement that they thought they were trying to start, yet he slowed things down and he saw her and he listened to her and he healed her. Go in peace. 
This was not just a polite way for Jesus to exit. This woman had not known a moment's peace for 12 years. The shalom Jesus spoke over her was everything. It was like cool water on sore feet. She would walk away in freedom. I can only imagine how long it was as she made her way home. She began to laugh and dance along the way for this man she had touched. She had to feel like she was flying her faith, not her effort, not her touch. Her faith made her well. This is crucial to the doctrine of justification by faith alone. She brought nothing to Jesus but her despair and her need. Do you have any despair? Do you have any need you could bring to Jesus this morning? She had a weak faith and a strong savior. You see, the the object of justifying saving faith is not your faith. We don't have faith in our faith. However strong you wish your faith was, the object of your faith is your savior who is stronger than you can possibly imagine. Faith is the alone instrument of of justification that lays hold of the efficient cause of justification, namely Jesus. Faith is the alone instrument that lays hold of the efficient cause of our salvation, of our justification, who is Jesus. Just then, someone came with devastating news. Jairus, I'm so sorry. It's too late. She's gone. No need to trouble the teacher now. But before Jairus could let his situation interpret the truth, Jesus said, as it were, Jairus, you came to me because you believed I could prevent death. Do you think I can't reverse it? Hang with me. Stay with me, Jairus. Let's go. What has happened in your world that has caused you to redefine what you think Jesus is capable of doing for you or cares to do for you? You lost someone, your own failures and screw-ups, and they just seem to pile up. Maybe you've had a financial downturn. Maybe, maybe you've gotten a diagnosis, and you think, well, clearly he doesn't care about the details of my life. I understand it. I've been there. But we need to stop recreating Jesus in our own image. He is not flaky like me and like you. Jesus doesn't peace out. Jesus does not tolerate you. He never has. He never will. We tolerate stuff we don't like. Jesus will never tolerate you. He ever only delights over you. Zephaniah 3.17, the Lord your God is mighty to save. He is in your midst. He will quiet you with his love and he will rejoice over you with loud singing. They get to Jairus' house. There's a a team of professional mourners there. You see, Jewish custom required even a peasant, if there was a death, to uh, hire two flautists and a female wailer. You can imagine a man of the influence and affluence of Jairus, a ruler of the synagogue. You can imagine the band of professional mourners who were there at his house wailing and, and, and mourning. And, and so as, as they, they arrive, you know, Jesus hears all of this and he interrupts and he says, this child is not dead but sleeping. And in an instant, those professional mourners become amateur scoffers. And they ridicule Jesus. They laugh. They laugh 
at the very one who, as St. Augustine 354 to 430 said, that while he sucked at his mother's breast, he was ruling the stars. They laughed at the one who even there had been touched by a dirty woman, was spinning the rings of Saturn on his fingertips. They laughed at him. (laughs) They think they are. Who do I think I am? In the ways that I mock Jesus, in the ways that I dismiss Jesus, in the ways that I doubt him. Who? Here I think I am. You can see here the antithesis between belief and unbelief. As Paul said to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 1 and 2, the gospel we preach is foolishness to them that are perishing. The aroma of life to those being saved, the aroma of death to those who are not. And so they just laughed and ridiculed him. The fake mourners laughed at the one who would truly mourn one day at the grave of Lazarus. And weep because death isn't the way it's supposed to be. So Jesus sent them away. As their laughter filled the air, he took the girl's parents and Peter and James and John into a room where the the air had just been sucked out. The deafening silence of death's dark shroud just filled the space. He had been touched by an unclean woman. Now the rabbi of life does the unthinkable, the worst thing imaginable. He touched a corpse. And in Aramaic, Talitha Kumi, little girl, rise up. And with that word of power, just as he calmed the storm, she rose up. He could speak to the storm on the sea, he could speak to the storm of death that was raging in this family's house. And he told him not to tell anyone, because no one would understand that the touch of Jesus here was more than a relief for a grieving family, but was a preview of the cosmic scope of his redemption, whereby his victory over the grave A resurrection ripple effect would release all of creation from its bondage, according to Romans 8.21. When we experience the resurrection of our own bodies, you and me, the bodies you're sitting in now, when we experience the resurrection of our own bodies from the grave, Jesus was putting death on notice that its days are numbered. He came to destroy him who owes the power of death and deliver all of us who through our fear of death were held in lifelong bondage, according to Hebrews 2.11-18. C.S. Lewis says in his book, Miracles, Jesus has forced open a door that had been locked since the death of the first man. He has met, fought, and beaten the king of death. Everything is different because he has done so. This is the beginning of the new creation. A new chapter in cosmic history has opened. He says in mere Christianity, and that is precisely what Christianity is about. This world is a great sculptor shop. We are like statues, and there is a rumor going around that some of us someday are going to come to life. An undeniable miracle, because he is full of undeniable mercy. You ever wonder why did Jesus delay Why did he slow down for that woman? Couldn't he have gotten to Jairus' house sooner? Why did he take time to talk to that poor woman? He called her out, you know, remember that in the text? Who touched me? He called her out for two main reasons. One, for her, so that she could hear what he was about to say over her. Two, for the crowd, 
so they could hear what he was about to say over her. Daughter, she is not despised. She is daughter. She is not to be dismissed. Call her daughter. Do not deride her. Call her daughter. She is no longer destitute. She is a daughter of the father who owns the cattle on a thousand hills and the hills upon which they graze. Let her alienation give way to adoption. Oh, oh, poor woman, come, daughter, trade in your bloody rags for a robe of righteousness, Isaiah 61.10, dipped in the blood of the lamb, Revelation 7.14. Now she has someone advocating for her, and so do you. Hebrews 7.25 says, therefore Jesus is able to save completely those who come to God through faith in him, for he always lives to intercede, to advocate for us. Her issue of blood was over as she was healed by the one whose blood would spill warm for her. Warm for you even now as Charles Wesley teaches us to sing five bleeding wounds he bears. Received on Calvary, they pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. Forgive him, oh, forgive, they cry. Forgive him, oh, forgive, they cry. Nor let that ransom sinner die. When we get to meet her in heaven, she can take us by the hand and point us to the five bleeding wounds and preach to us the gospel that got us there. No more miraculous word has ever been spoken than the word of cleansing and healing spoken by the blood of Jesus. She who could not dare enter the synagogue would enter the very heavenly holy of holies when Jesus, hanging on the cross, tore the veil in two, Matthew 27. 51, and so do we. Where do we touch the hem of Jesus' garment for healing? When Isaiah chapter 6, 1 to 5, in the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. The doorpost shook, smoke filled the place, and the seraphim with six wings, two they fly, two they cover their feet, and two they cover their face, and they cry, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. But because of the truth of Hebrews chapter 4, 14 to 16, therefore, since we have a great high priest, Jesus, the Son of God, who has passed through the heavens, let us hold unswerving to the faith we profess, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Are you glad to know that Jesus doesn't scold you for your weaknesses? He sympathizes with them. I love the old King James. We do not have a high priest who is untouched by the feelings of our infirmities. Where are you unclean? Where are you broken? Where are you in need? Where are you ashamed? Touch him with that. He wants to be, and you will be healed. We do not have a high priest unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is at all points tempted, even as are we, yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach boldly, not with arrogance, not with timidity, but a holy grace-enabled boldness. Let us approach boldly the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Here's the thing about Isaiah 6, 1 to 5. In the year King Uzziah died, I saw Yahweh, I saw Yahweh high and lifted up. John chapter 12, verse 41, John tells us that it was Jesus in his pre-incarnate state that Isaiah saw in that heavenly temple. It was Jesus' robe, the hem of which, the train of which filled the temple. You and I enter the very holy of holies, and the healing hem of Jesus' robe is a holy hem, and it heals you and me, and it declares you and I are covered in his very righteousness. 
Jesus' delay was for the sake of discipleship. It always is in our lives, always is. He has us wait upon him so he can work upon us. And he's ready to work upon us even now. A couple of details in our text, one remarkable and one rather common. When the woman touched him, Mark says that Jesus felt power go out of him. Remarkable, a sort of sudden brownout experienced in his humanity. For her to gain, he would lose. For her to be made strong, he would feel the weakness. By his stripes we are healed, Isaiah 53, 5. We are like branches, John chapter 15, 1 to 17. The branch has no life in itself. We suck the life from the vine. He must die the death we deserve that we might have the life we could never earn. Remarkable. He felt power go out of him into her. Any of you need to feel the power of Jesus this morning? Because you're about to. His final word, give her something to eat. A rather common thing, right? Or is it? She had been brought from death to life. Let her eat. It's proof that she's alive. Let her eat. Death can't win. Let her eat. It's proof that death can't win. The taunting laughter of the mourners would give way to the glad laughter of the parents. She is alive. Let her eat. Jesus has brought you from death to life, from darkness to light, Ephesians chapter 2 verse 4, but God being rich in mercy, not a miser with his mercy, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ even when we were dead in our sin. Let me ask you, are you hungry this morning for Jesus? If you are, it's because you're alive in him. If you're alive in Christ, it's time to eat. A meal is set before us and Jesus is present here by his Holy Spirit, a meal that tells us that Jesus became weak and he laid down his body and he shed his blood. He became weak for us, died and rose, that death would not have the last word. You see, you have been raised spiritually already according to Ephesians chapters 1 and 2, and you are guaranteed to rise physically in your resurrection body. And so Jesus says to all of you, little children, rise, it's time to eat. Pray with me, Father, we come now thankful that you are who you say you are, and thankful as we turn our hearts toward the word in a picture, a picture of bread and wine, having heard the word preached. Would you take these ordinary elements, Lord, of bread and wine, bread that remains bread and wine that remains wine, but do something extraordinary in us and don't let us remain the same. Even as we taste and see that you are good, increase our hunger, increase our appetite, show us our desperate need for you. Give us grace, Lord Jesus, to come to you. For we ask it in your precious name, our heavenly bridegroom, amen. The Lord's Supper is Jesus saying to us, it's time to eat. It's time to eat because death will not have the last word. If you were here and maybe you are you were just exploring the truth claims of Christianity for the first time. Um, you'd say, I don't have all my questions answered, but I, I know enough to know that I don't consider myself a follower of Jesus. 
uh, then rather than taking the bread and the wine today, take the opportunity uh, to think about what I've said, who Jesus is and what he does for stubborn sinners like me, and ask yourself, would I come to him? Would he receive me? In John chapter 6, verse 37, Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never turn away. Of course, he will not turn you away. But if you've not come to Jesus yet, uh, rather than come to the bread and the wine, take the opportunity to think about these things and maybe reach out to someone around you and say, hey, I have a few questions about Christianity. I promise you, you're surrounded by people who would love to get to know you and hear the details of your story. If you were here this morning and you say, uh, I can't tell you, David, how long it's been since I have laughed, since I have danced, since I have breathed, I have felt unheard and unseen, and I feel lost and alone, and I feel unclean. I need to touch Jesus afresh, and you have the opportunity here. Uh, dare not, dare not stay away. Dare not refuse to get into that crowd and reach out for the Lord Jesus. He is waiting for you.